Welcome to Ideas at the House, a podcast featuring live talks from the Sydney Opera House. I'm Edwina Throsby, the Head of Talks and Ideas, and the episode you're about to hear was recorded at All About Women in 2020. When it comes to technology, sexist stereotypes abound, and more than half of women in tech leave by the midpoint of their careers, often due to being outnumbered, harassed, belittled and underpaid. T. Uglo is the creative director of Google Creative Lab. Her work focuses on pushing boundaries in global tech and creative industries. And as a trans woman, she has experienced these industries from multiple sides of the gender divides. In this talk, hosted by Madison Connaughton, T. pulls apart the false binaries we hold about tech and gender and considers how we might be able to transcend tokenism to achieve a properly diverse workplace. Thank you all so much for being here. My name is Madison Connaughton, and in my day job, I am the editor of the Saturday paper. Um, but today, I have um, a very exciting job, which is getting to speak to T. Uglow about this kind of thorny and broad question um, where I'm excited to see where it takes us, which is, is tech gendered? Mm. Um, but before we start, I want to acknowledge that we're on Gadigal country today and this is stolen land and it always was and always will be Gadigal land. Um, and I think in the context of the summer that we've had, I want to acknowledge how Gadigal people have managed and cared for this land for tens of thousands of years um, and continue to fight for it today. Um, and I want to pay my respects to Gadigal elders past, present and emerging um, and any First Nations people here with us today. So we're going to talk for about 40 minutes and then we're going to take some questions. Um, if you have a question as we're speaking, um, keep it in your head and then I'll let you know when questions are coming up. Just stick your hand up and we have some wonderful ushers that will come around with microphones um, and you can ask whatever you'd like. I'm not going to make a joke about make the question a question or anything like that. I'm sure you've been to enough talks and you know if there's a question mark at the end of it, that would be, that would be amazing. <laughs> <laughs> um, so T, you are the creative director for Google's Creative Lab in Sydney. But I feel like I've heard you talk about how having a title in a job like this feels a bit limiting, or how do you distill everything you do into well, something yeah. like a title? We were just talking just minutes ago about like how interesting it is at events like this. Sam was just saying like that, that people get introduced by, by titles. <laughs> um, and um, like that's somehow a defining quality of what you do. <laughs> And I don't like my title, I, and actually it's no longer really my title. But for a long time I was technically, because people would say, what's your title, what's your job title? And so it's Creative Director at Google's Creative Labs in Sydney. It's almost right, you get yes. very good at yeah. Um, and then I did um, an interview with a Chinese magazine, it was very beautiful, it was in Chinese, I didn't know what it said. Um, <laughs> so I went online and Google translated it, because that's what you do, right? And, um, and they... The translation, Google's translation of that was experimental person in charge. <laughs> <laughs> and I felt much more comfortable with that. <laughs> I was like, yeah, we do experiments, we're experimental, we're kind of an experimental person, full stop. Um, and we're in charge, which is this wonderful, yeah, director, that's basically what that means, right? And anyone who knows me or who's worked with me knows that that's really not a very good description. <laughs> of how I operate. Um, so it was full of kind of sort of like suddenly the words got unpacked and they were much more alive and real and they meant something. So I was like, 
I changed it on LinkedIn. Um, <laughs> and then people would get very confused as to whether that was actually... And I changed it at Google as well, because you can do that, because you can still do things like that. Like this little quirky little company where you can change your title, and that's kind of all you can do in terms of quirky little things, because it's... <laughs> Uh, take, your, take your wins where you yes, can get exactly. them. <laughs> um, I am curious about the, like, what it is like to work in a tech company, because I've definitely worked in spaces, and I think I'm sure lots of people here have worked in spaces that felt um, like there was a boys club, or felt mm. like they were you know, spaces that were designed for men to succeed. Um, but I think that from the outside tech, there's definitely problems that are reported a lot in the media, in the tech world, but I'm just curious if, like, what is that like inside that space and kind of describe that a little bit because, I mean, it's, it seems like it is a male-dominated space but not in the way that, like, maybe banking is or something like no, that. No, it's not in the way that banking is. <laughs> it's not in the way that sports is. It's not in the way of that, that actually... But it is the same thing. Like, these are actually just archetypes that get established at school um, through society, so you have like jock culture, that's perfectly understood. You have like that kind of alpha culture, which then moves to university and through debating societies into um, banks and um, uh, the consultancies. Politics. Politics. And then you see how hard it is to deconstruct. And, th and that, in a way, has been imported from the, from the public school system. Like these things date back a long way. So the weird, the sort of the thing that you're referring to, which actually, in my experience, I haven't experienced so much, but I know let's, if we talk about it in generalities, and it's a very real generality, um, comes from um, a very strange, like we should do the history of just like there's a little bit of history as to why why we are at this point. I'd love to hear it. Um, which is that um, computing is is a nerd's game. And the nerds never had power like jocks. They had their clubs. We did like our Dungeons and Dragons. Like, <laughs> I very happily consider myself in that club. Like the whole idea of a geek or a nerd, that language has changed from being entirely um, like a sort of pejorative to becoming a, almost a badge of honor. Um, and that's what's really interesting about this group is that it doesn't have a, a, a kind of hundred-year history or two, like, centuries of history of dominating and power and, like, prestige and kind of what we expect from our patriarchy. It's a new branch of the patriarchy, <laughs> which is dominated by guys who previously were slightly intimidated by women. Um, <laughs> and actually, that leads to some really awkward structural situations. What kind of structural situation? Well, I mean, so the, 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 other, so the other interesting part of that, I don't think that's a contentious issue. Um, we've had, like, there's, you can go back, there's articles about bro culture and the, the development of, like, the bro grammar from, for the last 10, 15 years. This is not a new thing. In fact, we're slightly over that. We are actually within the industry and within technology fully aware of what is in front of our eyes. And what we're struggling with is how on earth you change things, how you do catch-up, culture? How do, you, how do you fundamentally change things which are, uh, are institutional and structural um, without bloody revolution? Again, this is the thing that we're looking at in politics. This is the thing we're looking at in um, economics. These are not new things. These are the same struggles that we have with patriarchal systems everywhere. Um, what's 
interesting for me is quite how condensed the timeline is, because computers as, and the idea of a computer not meaning a woman, funnily enough, mm. is about 60 to 70 years old. So pre-Second World War, computers were generally women. It was not a particularly highly regarded position. It's affected my grandmother was a computer during the Second World War. In that she was someone she computed, who she computed, sat there and yeah, did equations. She and sat underneath the, the, um, in the White Cliffs of Dover and did calculations in a, in a pre-computer space mm. based on algorithms and, not, um, and logarithms and tables. Like. And then those were passed on to a high command to make decisions. That's what a computer does, mm -hmm. processes, um, on a logic system. And um, then as we built these machines to replace the women, it was fairly obvious that the first people that you would get to do that would be the women. So they began to program the computers. Um, so the earliest programmers are very often women. Like, there's this extraordinary history of, of women in early computing. Um, and then as it became more of a science in the, in the 50s and 60s and computers advanced, um, it was a fairly equal mix because it was considered a science. It was a science program, and there wasn't a kind of gender inequality in, in approaching that science. Everyone was approaching it as a new thing as they got to that stage in, in um, university. It certainly wasn't being taught at school. Um, and in the, I think from the mid-70s, even to the mid-80s, like, actually, the number of women on computer science courses was not equal, but like, you know, 30 40%, high 30s. Like, and in some places, totally equal. We had like parity going in and coming out. And then over the next 10 years, that kind of goes off a cliff um, until it's like down about 10%. And even with the 10%, that's like an entry level, and they're not finishing. Mm. And then you have to go, well, what? Like, so there's a very good book about why that happens. Um, uh, called, like, I think, Decoding the Clubhouse or something like that. So, again, it's not, this is not new. This is not new history. We've, like, people have studied this. And we can see this um, emergence. And it's wonderful because it does go back to this thing of, like, this is not about evil male programmers. This is about culture. This is about the systems that we exist. This is about what we think of as normal. And we have all contributed to it, which is that home computers arrived in the 80s. And um, they were given to the boys. And the, 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 because the boys were expected to use the tools, and the boys would get the boy would get more. Like I was one of these boys. Mm. In 1981, I got a ZX81, a, a Sinclair Spectrum computer. I don't know how geeky everyone is. It's, it's about technology, so we're getting a little teeny bit geeky here. Um, and I learned basic. Like I used to code for magazines. You'd get a paper magazine, and you would you would code the game into the computer which had, a, like, I think the ZX81 had a 1K memory, and you could get a 16K RAM slacked in the back. I mean, it's wild. Um, but that's how my introduction to technology, that's what I was taught. And I did get time with my dad, I mean, until he got very frustrated. Like, but you got that one-on-one -on -one time. It was seen as a boy's pursuit. Did you have sisters? Yeah. Did they get the same? No. No. And that's just something which is... A blanket norm, right? It's not seen as their. It's not seen as a as a pursuit that they would take. It was not about. So, funnily enough, in India, different story because it actually, funnily, it's seen as a way of protecting women because they would be in the house, they would be under supervision. It was definitely the same thing. So, you have actually much, much more parity um, in engineering colleges in India. Um, and these are the things that we should. You have to start with if you want to talk about. 
how biased it is, and AI, and data, and all of these terrible things, and the boys, and um, when, you know, the things that they write and the things that they do, you have to understand that, it, that that culture was born, those kids were empowered. So then what happens is that they then move through to university and you begin to get in the mid-80s, um, you begin to get kids arriving where the boys have got, like, the boys have got a head start and therefore feel a sense of superiority. It actually doesn't even follow that, like, the university, as computer science courses are great levelers. Like, if you do follow people the whole way through, it doesn't make any difference at the end, because everyone has learnt. And actually, women ramp up just as, just as well. It's the same as you see with um, inequality from um, educational background or from wealth inequality. Like, actually, people with, uh, who, who get a head start don't actually often finish ahead. Mm. But we don't see that when you are coming in as a minority, what you see is an enormous mountain ahead of you, and you see a bunch of privileged people who feel that this is their place. And that sense of our place, that sense of culture, begins to infuse this amazing explosion of technology and programming that happens through the mid-90s and the first dot-com boom in the late 90s um, and then the second dot-com was like the, the real internet that we know and love today. Um, that that's being driven by that generation of guys, not to mention all of the usual um, privilege that, that, that we, we, we expect and afford across any, any culture. So there is, there's like, I think there's a really nice kind of way of looking at that history before you get to the, the problems that that causes. Um, and, and I don't know how you fix it. Mm. I mean, we, we're trying to fix it. Like, it's, it's not like we don't have, we have amazing heroines throughout computer culture and trying to draw them out and, and, and remind people that they're there, that doesn't fix it. It's not about role models particularly. It's actually about culture. So there was also this very awkward period when, um, when, when companies decided that the best, you should, you should have culture fit. Anyone remember culture fit? I think we kind of decided that was a bad idea. But hey, how about we find people who fit with the culture of our company? Um, which, if you are a very kind of boyish, aggressive startup, is going to make you more boyish and more aggressive. Um, if you have a culture, I mean, it's not like it's, I don't know. I don't know. I've not actually worked in engineering, mm. in an engineering team. I've never really had to, um, I don't, like, even as, I don't really like guys that much. <laughs> <laughs> They're not like my favourite type. <laughs> you know, they're useful for certain things, but <laughs> I don't put myself in those spaces. Mm. I spent my life making safe spaces for myself because I have various issues that I need to, to deal with. And, and um, yeah, like, those are not spaces that I've been in. But I do see and I mentor people in engineering in Google who struggle enormously with... Um, this sort of very strange sense of expectation. And I think that it is the same um, for any normative group, mm -hmm. that they will expect you to, to, when in Rome, do as the Romans do. It's mm -hmm. like, it's a very strange phrase. Um, and it's really like, fit in or die. And that's kind of what we're expected to do across 
any range of things. Mm -hmm. And technology is no different. But I can actually just keep talking forever, so I'm going to guess you've got other questions on your sheet. I think, well, you said that you haven't spent much time in those spaces, right? You've been able to find, carve out a niche for yourself within a large company where a lot of what they do is engineering, but mm. you haven't had to... You've been able to find a way to work there without being in those spaces. But I think I'm curious, like, a, a big um, proposed solution to the gender issue in tech is lean in and the idea that women should participate more fully in that culture, break it up, go to the table, put but their elbows don't. up, you know. And I wonder, like, do you think that that is... What do you think about that as a theory of how to break up that, that bro culture that manifests in tech? I think it basically moves... Like, I think... It, I don't like it very much. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like, I like Cheryl. Mm. Um, I think she's great. <laughs> but Separating I, the person from their theory. <laughs> from their yeah. theory, yeah. It's like I'm not going to critique an individual. <laughs> um, but I don't like what happens when individuals are basically encouraged to act on self-interest on the principle that they will then later um, somehow be able to defeat that self-interest, mm. even when it's actually manif through manifesting that that, they, that they've reached a position of authority. Um, that's weird. So the idea that you could be sort of a secret agent that is in there, you know, running with the boys and then get to a position of power, <coughs> turn around and start advocating for equality. Yes. It's, it's hard to It's switch. really hard. It's really hard. It's really hard because actually you forget that individuals have lives and have friends and have colleagues and have, like, relationships that are really bound up in and how and who you, who you are and how you see yourself. And it is exactly the same as kind of like coming out as a sleeper cell and actually declaring much to the amazement of everyone around you that you are a member of a caliphate um, and that all this must change. It's like, that's not going to work. <laughs> and actually, we do talk about things in terms of like, and especially at the moment, in terms of what is going to be required to, to, to actually create change, to create the circumstances for change. Do we have to wait until things are so bad that the entire country is burning or flooding or both before we will have change. And then we are burning or flooding or both and we have no change. None. Not even a whisper of change. Um, we are not, as a group, capable of doing these things. How we expect people as individuals to, to do it is, is slightly beyond me. And actually what the conditions are for change is, at the moment, really slightly beyond me. I'm not quite sure. So we have, um, certainly within technology, like one of the... So we do actually make change. Like, there are really interesting things which you can do that make change. And I do believe in the idea of working within an organisation. Otherwise, I wouldn't have stayed. I wouldn't have stayed there. I was working in charities. I was working at, like, I mean, like, strange places like Christian Aid and Water Aid. And I was working for medical charities. And um, I was in development work. That's where I felt comfortable, an arts administration, really. Um, and I walked in through the doors. It wasn't a huge company then. I thought it was a huge American corporation. I was like, it's got 5,000 people. I can't work here. <laughs> and that was 15 years ago, and it's now near 200,000. And it has changed a lot. It is a very different company. And the tech industry has changed a lot. Um, and, I, and I do think that there was, there was a great... There were, have been great periods where it's like, we can make change and we can make powerful change that is, um, that is coming from a very, very good place. 
And a lot of the work we're doing at the moment is about allowing people to understand that if they have no lived experience of the chain, like of what they're trying to deal with, or what they're trying to help, support, create, all of the other examples that we might talk about, about gendered technology, come really from a place of um, inexperience rather than malign. They're not malign. They're not like malicious. They come from ignorance and, and like any other kind of mistakes. They come from people who have too much confidence and actually don't have access to communities. So I'm very big on being involved and giving them access to those communities. And I get a little bit stroppy when they don't access the communities, when they don't listen to the communities, when they're within their own organization. It's, that's very frustrating. But they do, they, are, they do try, and I think that's across the industry, is this sort of sense that it would be, that, that they should try and they would like to try. And that, that a lot of, there are a lot of good people who want to do good things. Um, more so, perhaps, in other industries where they are, are weary of that mm -hmm. and everyone knows what they're doing. Mm -hmm. They work for the devil and they sold their soul and they know that. Mm -hmm. They know that, like, and they'll quite happily acknowledge it. Like, within technology, there's still this slight sense of kind of um, <coughs> hippie culture from the 70s and 80s where it's like, we can make a difference. Mm -hmm. We can change the world. And in lots of ways, they have changed the world. And in lots of ways, that's very positive. There's no way I'd be sitting here as a trans woman without the internet. Mm. So it was 2006 when you started at Google, is mm. that right? And I feel like you have said about that time that Google at that time was a group of people who wanted to change the world via oh, yeah. tech. And I'm curious what you think that that vision was at the time, and did it include gender equality or you know, a flattening of perceived gender roles or things like that? Was that part of the vision that... I think it was a little younger than that. Yeah. I think it was, it was groups... It was people who were literally out of university. Like, they were just following on. Like, you know how idealistic you were at university? That. I was very cynical. Were you? <laughs> <laughs> um, I think it was people who, who... Like, there was a culture fit. And it was, um, it, like, certainly within the groups that I was working with, there was very, it was very balanced on a, on a gender balance. Certainly wasn't balanced on race or educational um, um, advantage. But it was, um, I mean, I, I feel very strange in that I got in, I got hired to do PowerPoint, basically. <laughs> and everyone else got hired because of their degrees mm. and where they went. Um, and, um, but we, I've always, I've, like, within the marketing division, within that kind of organisation, there's always been very strong female leadership. And there's, there hasn't ever been a kind of... And I don't think there should be a political mandate within those space, within any corporation, really, because at that point you start looking at corporations and nation-states and trying to work out what the actual difference is. Mm -hmm. So it's better that they're neutral, even though that looks incredibly awkward when you have to take neutral positions but you also have to consider what it would be like to be on the wrong side of uh, a political <laughs> corporation. Um, so, so there are very few kind of external kind of political statements, but there are lots of tools that have been and continue to be made kind of off the back of um, wanting to help, crisis response tools. Um, Google News came out of the back of 9-11. Like, um, 
and trying to find access information. The, the whole kind of principle, like Google's organizing principle, which is to um, organize the world's information and make it universally accessible, is um, altruistic, really. And that still sticks to an extent. I think it's very hard within commercial world to kind of, to, to kind of have a, a guiding principle which is altruistic, and that's hard. And to defend that position is, is hard, but you can still see lots of examples of it. I think one of the nicest sort of and most kind of, over the last 10 years, it has got much more pointy. And I think there are examples where individuals have made huge change. I was, um, um, I was just thinking the other day about the, the emoji, the, the emoji representation, mm -hmm. like gender and tech because I thought, oh, I'm doing a talk on gender and tech. And, and I was like, oh, yeah, that is a good point. So we've, I've just recently finished a project with um, Unicode, which has taken four years, and we managed to get a, a transgender um, um, emoji pride flag. And this is something which I'm very proud of. But it wouldn't, again, wouldn't have happened if it weren't for the fact that um, emoji were um, default male as a language. And and struggle with this kind of whole concept, which is that we will, as a, as a species, because of how we have existed across centuries, um, look, uh, assign default male to any symbol. So if it's a smiley face, for some reason, it's a male smiley face. But it's got no features whatsoever. <laughs> and so emoji, which was this incredible, rapidly growing language, which now I think 90% of internet users use this language. It is a language of communication even when it's hard to understand exactly what someone is saying. Uh, <laughs> it is, that is what it is to do. And the idea that you can have a language where only one gender is represented was very broken. Um, and it was um, individual women in Google and in Microsoft. And um, I think that was basically the basic thing that, that kind of took this to task and made the, because you can make those kind of changes. And they, in 2016, got the first um, acknowledgement of representation, that these emojis, however much people wanted them to be neutral, were representing men <laughs> um, and were representing a male society. And was exactly the same as the idea that, that you know, in any drop-down form, this should be organized alphabetically, so male should definitely come above female. <laughs> Those sorts of decisions, that kind of like very, very, um, not even subliminal, but just like surface decision-making where these things become default, where our world becomes a default male um, or default masculine is, is the kind of things which we can do from within organizations. Mm -hmm. um, and then that became, interestingly, that became um, a point of representation. And unfortunately, the language kind of explodes once you have representation because if everything stops being neutral and noun-based, like, where do you stop? So, like, we now have non-binary representation, which is great, and we now have, like, um, um, racial representation, and we now have, like, um, like we have to create combinations of those things, and it actually always becomes incredibly complicated and was a very bad idea in the first place. <laughs> but, <laughs> but it comes out of the fact that culture is gendered. We can't fix this. You can't fix this until you stop creating a distinction <coughs> based on a very arbitrary, based on S, based on the idea that, like, anything which is gendered gets a binary definition. And then, regardless of how much information you have about that, that other, if you're given the gender, you will bring a 
ton of information mm -hmm. to that individual. And none of that is applicable. It's all in your head. And it's all in your head, and it's born out of your, your childhood. It's born out of like your, your desire to fit, these very simple ideas about being safe, being normal. When in Rome, don't get killed, act like the others. If you look like a boy, be a boy. If you want to get ahead, lean in, fit. Um, and that will is the most the safest model for you. Mm. And those those things that we do in a kind of very normative way. This is basic. Like this is Judith Butler. This is like gender theory. This is like where you go back to that stuff and you go. When we have a binary model and a whole load of, of preconceptions and, and expectations that are applied immediately to an engineer called Sam, because we're going to assume it's a guy. <laughs> Um, but it's not, actually. She's very smart. Um, she's very mask. <laughs> you know, let's muddle this up a bit, because she's got to fit with all these other engineers. And if she kind of comes in and is firm and has any kind of, any kind of qualities to, to her um, behavior that, that make them feel uncomfortable, they make her feel uncomfortable. So just like in a family, if you don't fit, you actually kind of work your way back until you can do the game, you can do the dance so that you fit. We learn how to fit. There, when you are a tiny child, you learn how to fit into your family. And then your family extends to your school. And then that school extends to your, you know, your culture, your society. And you understand, we inherently know the, the game of fitting. And when we don't fit, when we really don't fit, sometimes we just get ostracized and we live a very hard life. Sometimes eventually we find our people. But it's, it, a lot of when we talk about the gender disparity comes down to the fact that we just carry this expectation right from birth. After the Industrial Revolution, there's so little that's inherently that we need to, be, that we need to think about. This is basic gender theory. This is not kind of, again, <laughs> not complicated stuff. But when you bring it back to technology, that's where we are. You can't address um, gender inequality in tech without first addressing why we think that there is a difference mm. and why we continue to assert a difference every time we open our mouths. It's wild. Mm. But it does make things like this. It's like, yeah, is tech gendered? Yeah. <laughs> Everything's gendered. Society is gendered. Like, we, we're, not, we're not going to win by cherry, like, finessing the detail. So what, are the, what, what exactly is the state, what state do we have to reach to, for, for a change state yeah. where change is possible? I think, was it in 2018 that a lot of Google employees did a walkout? Mm -hmm. um, yes, I think it did. was all around the world. Yeah. Um, but it was, you know... It was late 2018. Late it was organised in about two weeks. Oh, was it late 2018 or was it early? Like, I... I Forget. October, wait. I think I have I'm not November sure. 2018. Yeah, I thought it was like, I remember the weather being quite nice. <laughs> <laughs> the perfect day to I'm ask feeling, people to walk outside. Yeah, feeling this would be less fun in New York. Um, yeah, we did. We walked out because um, this, uh, like, evidence of uh, payment to Andy Rubin came out, yeah. which was kind of shocking. And it was amazing to watch that kind of activity. Mm emerge spontaneously from a non-unionised yeah. group. 
I think, I mean, just for context, there was some New York Times reporting that suggested that a, an executive at Google, there had been a accusation of sexual harassment made against him and he had left the company um, but was given a $90 million payout. Um, and he, you know, denies the accusations. Um, but I think the amount of money was, was a, sort of a catalyst for political movement within Google. But I wonder if, I, I, I understand if you can't talk about it, but I think, that collective action that happened on that day in 2018. And if you've noticed since then that something about, you know, we can't do these things individually, you've said, but I wonder if that collective action that happened that day has had some sort of impact within the company or if you've seen a realisation within your colleagues that if you move together, things can change, more, perhaps more quickly than... Um, I think you can get great press coverage. Mm. <laughs> And whether you can get change is a really difficult thing to look at. And we have to, I mean, you have to come back and look at that in the future. You have to come back and, and look at that in another five years' time and say, did anything happen? Um, because things are, you know, I know that people want things to happen. <laughs> that we want things to happen. I know that leadership want things to happen. It's one of those very peculiar things where you can talk to people all the way up the organisation as humans. And this is the thing that I like the most about companies, is that they're full of humans that, as humans, are not sort of merciless and capitalist and single-minded. But as an organisation, that's kind of exclusively what they are. <laughs> and you wonder how. Like, you do wonder how. Like, how? If everyone isn't to blame, then how? Who, who, who and what is this? Mm. What does a company's authentic self look like? Um, um, so I think that actually, like, collective action is a, is a really interesting example. We are seeing collective action, and it is being met by inaction. We are seeing collective action all over the world, and it, it is met by um, rhetoric. So there's a really strange moment of, like, um, like there's the revolution in you that looks at history and goes, like, or well, maybe there's the historian in you that looks at revolutions. That would probably be a more <laughs> safer place to position myself. And goes, well, when is, that, when is change enacted? Mm. Um, when do we see actual radical change to structures and systems that has a knock-on cultural effect that is actually positive? Um, when, when are those moments? Um, and and how, do you, how did they really come about? Because the, like, the politics of the moment is, is not, it's, it is not, and it does not fill me with confidence. And having watched, yeah, a number of situations emerge um, within an organisation, like, you, you know that, um, you know that, that, that really the, uh, the goal is the smooth running of the organisation. <laughs> so, so as much as we would like to do things, and we have so many projects, so many projects which are looking at pipelines, looking to try and, and balance this equality, looking at how we allow the people within our company to better understand that very... Because a lot of this is just about understanding. Like, again, guys are not... These guys are not bad guys, they're nice guys. <laughs> Like, they're nice guys. It's like, a scary term. <laughs> but they are nice Yes, no. <laughs> they, um, the coders are like, like, that's not the point. They're not, they, they, they are, again, coming from positions of ignorance, um, not malice. 
you're coming with any kind of minority coming into a space, what you're dealing with is the idea that these people, the people that are around them have not any idea of their lived experience, have not any idea of what it is to have been through these processes. It's wonderful when people go, oh, you have not got... Um, it's like, you have lived with male privilege for a certain period of li your life, therefore you are not valid as a woman, and you want to go, oh, go fuck yourself. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's amazing. It's like, yeah, okay, <laughs> great. You go be autistic and, like, mental <laughs> and trans and queer. And then someone will come along and go, yeah, well, you go and be, like, a sort of indigenous and poor. You're going to have the shit kicked out of you every weekend. You're going to have, like, abusive parents. It is not a competition. And the second we start thinking about it like that, and it shouldn't really be a competition, like, up the scale, but they see it as... It, it can be threatening. Um, and I know I keep correlating this with the trans experience. This is something which I'm working a lot with in the UK. Like, it is very threatening to women's organisations um, who have come through a certain history. And unless you begin the conversation there, then you're not going to reach a point where people can, like, acknowledge similarity rather than perceive difference. And as long as we perceive difference, we will always edge it out until they become normal to us. Mm. Because differences, that's not what we want. We want them to be like, like the Romans. <laughs> we have a couple of minutes left. Um, and I feel like we've spoken about tech a lot as an industry or an environment or a space. Mm. But I, I'm aware that it's also a, a thing that yeah. is made. Um, and I guess the thing that sounds amazing about your job is that you do a lot of imagining and experimentation and think about, you know, what it could look like if it was better. Yeah. And... I just wonder, like, if the term gendered tech has been used, and I wonder if you have an idea of what, like, intersectional technology would look like, if <coughs> what non-gendered technology would look like. I think the first intersection is really an accessibility intersection rather than, like, if you go to India, like, the, the, the internet for people who don't speak English exists under a tab called Hindu. Mm. Like, that's it, that's, their whole, that's the whole internet. Like, you have Wikipedias in different languages which are... Um, very, very narrow. So therefore, your basis of knowledge, if you move to that model, is very, very narrow. And it's also like you can influence it in quite scary ways. So like, I think the first intersection is like accessibility and um, language. Like, how do you make broad... Um, and also, like, like, there are very complicated things about access that actually come before women. We haven't got into, which I would like, if there are questions, like there are things about gender tech which are about design, they're about like the utility of, like how we design for men, again, from a default male perspective, because we don't think. Um, and I've definitely been guilty of that. And we've all been guilty of that, like we all do that. We think about, we design for ourselves or our mental image. Um, and if we design for an other, we then use prejudices and expectations of what that other will require, rather than actually going and talking to that other in the first place, um, which would be a better model. Mm. So, so trying to encourage those practice, that practice, that practice of incorporating with rather than for, um, designing with people, especially disabilities, um, where you 
especially mental health, invisible disabilities, like where you're like, no, you cannot imagine. I'm sorry, you can't. You, you're not going to guess this one. And it's going to be very hard, actually, for us to even think about it, because we don't get asked what would be helpful. <laughs> so, yeah, women do come in there. Like, I think the, that in that kind of sense of, like, designing f sort of for, mm -hmm. then the design with principle, like, actually women are relatively low. Where it is much more significant is the projects we've been doing around um, language and data, because the, 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 the much more significant problem for women is um, the way in which the information that we've been using for decades, centuries, is very, very firmly gendered. Um, it's very firmly um, male first. We had this sudden realization, I think about five years ago, that if we looked at all our doodles <laughs> of people through history, this is not a good look. <laughs> it did not work well. And then there was a really interesting fight about, like, oh, OK, are we going to be a revisionist? Well, I thought it was an interesting fight. No one else really thought it was a particularly interesting fight. <laughs> I can be a little contrary sometimes. I, would, I fought against us doing the Sochi doodle, where we did a gay, um, like a gay flag for the Olympics in Russia, because it's like, that's the kind of statement that I don't want coming back against me and my people. Thank you very much. Like, that's, I know I don't agree with them. Mm. <laughs> Believe me, I don't. I just don't think that large American corporations or any global organization should start making political statements through, through their branding. And, um, and we had a similar thing. So this is a similar thing with these doodles, where you're like, OK, so we are going to go and find women. And how are we going to do that exactly? Are we going to revise history? Are we going to raise up people that there isn't actually uh, an evidence base to support? Um, what are we going to do here? How are you going to approach that when it is a male-dominated history? And there's this same problem with data, which is that it is so organically biased that if we use it to train systems, um, we end up with it on a, or like a naturally biased system. We, I know you'll have heard that like it's the guys programming, and it's because it's the guys that it's it's kind of that's where the bias is. And it's almost less that, really. It's the, the data. It's everything you put in, we put in, all the labels that we apply. Every time we slut shame or fat shame or get involved, like we do a lot. A lot of the content on the internet comes from women. And a lot of it is not helpful. Um, but we're not really thinking about how we are modeling uh, like um, a baby machine. Mm. Like, what are we telling it? We're not thinking about uplifting the sisterhood every time you want to write something snarky on Twitter. So trying to analyze that language at that level and, and actually just really digging in. And at the moment, we're doing strings and sellotape stuff. Every time you see that stuff about it's strings and sellotape stuff, because we're only just working out how it works in the first place. So Facebook hired 10,000 people when they needed to fix the AI. That was how they did it, um, because you because we they, you can't just unplug it, look for the code, go oh that's the bias bit, and then plug it in again. <laughs> that is not how it works. <laughs> um, it is fascinating. It's like watching a, like a, a speeded up version of, of 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 this history, like the history of the patriarchy, and you see it happening. But it is literally speeding up, and also there's quite a lot of other stuff going on at the same time. 
And it's not like it's even invisible. You see these patterns rolling over and over, like AI um, systems that are uh, looking at um, effective, I think LinkedIn have a very effective kind of a, a resume kind of profiling system, which actually isn't, they, they need to take offline because it is still kind of looking at gendered language as being effective because that's the language of the CVs that get selected. And Amazon was done for that as well, wasn't they? Yeah. Having an AI recruitment. Like, there are good signs. We, I was really, really pleased that, that just before this happened, like last week, there was a lovely thing saying, oh, well, our Photos API, Google's Photos API, like the, the AI for Google Photos, is, is just, they're going to stop using that whole man-woman thing. Like, we're just not going to do it anymore. Like, yeah, sure, you can have biological sex, but you're not going to recognize it visually. Mm. Because, um, and yeah, sure, you can apply prejudices to biological sex through other data forms, but you can't do it visually. What are you saying? Um, so it's just not a thing. Mm. Suddenly, it's about people. Everyone's just a person. Because everyone is actually a human, and you bring, you may present or, or, or have different skills and sets, but like from the outside, using light, as your, your, your data mechanic, like, there is no way that you should be making judgments about who this person is and where they fit in society. It is not something that should be done. But we actually are going, oh, yeah. And it's 2020. <laughs> so that, in a way, is lovely, because the, the human equivalent to that is going, hey, this pronoun thing with the she, he thing, that's fucked. <laughs> We should just use they. Singular they. What's the problem? And, like, if you have a problem with they plural, let's just change that to they's. Mm. <laughs> just find another word for the plural version of it. It's a lot easier than fixing the fact that you've got this binary which comes with all of this baggage. I use she, they, and when people ask me about it, it's like, no, I don't identify as non-binary. I actually, within my gender, like, I'm very feminine, and I'm very comfortable with that. But within... The language, that's why emoji matters, within language, we are causing so much damage with that. And we don't need to. So we're beginning to see that in technology before we see it in society. And I think that, that in a way, that's a really nice point to end this section on, because we are seeing those, we see those, and we can fix for them. It would be really nice if society could too. Keep up. Mm, yeah. <laughs> Let's um, have some questions. Sure. Um, if you have a question, stick your hand up. Um, we've got some microphones that are coming around now. Maybe this in the green top just here. Yep. Oh, just here, yep. Hi. Um, I have Ooh. a question. So going back to what you said about organisations needing to feel safe, um, they need the binary, they need their culture fit, making people fit the culture, or their expectations. Um, so I'm just wondering, as a non-binary person and as the head experimenter at Google, oh. <laughs> how does breaking out of that um, made a difference to you doing your job? Has it made a difference? Does it made it better because you don't try to make things fit? I'm just curious. Um, I don't try to make things fit less because of my gender identity and more because of like mental health conditions. <laughs> Um, it's kind of curious when you look at the work you do and realize that actually you're just trying to reflect how you understand reality. And it's taking the reason that people are so confused is that most people don't really understand reality that way. Um, so then actually everything you do looks kind of dull. You thought it was 
it's, it's the experiments that we do are not about... I don't think that taking this kind of head-on approach can, is, always a very, is always the right way to achieve things. I think that when we're not going to... Um, that art and culture is probably one of the, the, the most um, pervasive forms that we can use. Because you look at art and culture and how it, um, how it currently creates the, our expectations of these roles. You look at um, the Hollywood, you look at Stan, you look at Netflix, you look at like the newspapers around us, you look at all of these media forms which are basically interpretable. Like they're not, they're not fact, no one's being held to account. They're certainly not science. Like, there's, and we're discounting science. So actually through acts of interpretable um, experimentation, you can allow people to see things much more clearly that, that you can't do as a company. <laughs> you can't do as a global corporation. You can't take these kind of absolute standpoints because there are no absolutes, especially across a market that is like the entire world. It's like, who are you to do that? Um, so I do think that the artistic expression is really important. It does kind of get wrapped back up with the commercial and the need for the normal and the need for people to feel comfortable with what you're showing them. But, but again, we, we are, there are a lot of things that are being challenged through those, through those modes. Like, you can argue that a lot of what's happened through YouTube um, and through sort of things like Twitter, like those kind of places, Facebook, Google, like I spent, I didn't have anywhere to go. I didn't know that other trans people existed. I had only the thing that was, in, was normal. And there was no way I could find that. Um, and so I'm quite glad, really, like, not for me, but certainly for a generation who are coming through, for whom that information sharing is more possible. So, yeah, within doing experiments, every experiment kind of has that at its core, which is like, what are we, what are we kind of looking to break here? And we're not looking to... I mean, actually, yes, yeah, so all my experiments basically work on the model of, like, how do we break it? <laughs> <laughs> like, what would broken this do? Um, and because it's through that that you, you, you let people see what they can do, um, especially artists um, and the culture makers. Like, it's very peculiar. Mm. Um, there was a Black Mirror episode recently that, that had a kind of multi-choice ending, and you're like, yeah, that's, that's the experiments we were doing 10 years ago. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> it's a teeny bit frustrating, but also, <laughs> but also great. And you see that again and again. You see, like, the Royal Shakespeare Company just doing a production that we began with them, in a way, eight years ago, which was about... which is, like, a weirdly pre-fake news, but was about, like, what happens if we have a play which also exists in the real world, on the internet, in real time? Like, what does that look like? And um, it looks a lot like the Trump presidency. <laughs> You're like, really? And you, you know, that kind of like real time mm -hmm. pursuit of like, is this for real? And that, that sort of drama and, and the whole concept of fake news, all of this idea of theater, you know, we've seen that, we saw that, we, we were there, you're playing with it. If you listen and you look at what's happening, um, and when the companies give enough space, 
this is really just using the tools of today to hold a mirror to society. And I, I th wish there was more, more of it. I think it would be a very useful way for people to see what is happening rather than this objective form of like, oh, we need to provide a tool that does this thing. Mm. Do we have a questioner up the front here? Oh, hi. Um, so it was recently discovered that the AI that was used to assess people for getting loans had been biased towards women. And um, th the way the AI was trained, that they do not put any gender characteristic with the individual that's applying for these loans. Um, and yet they were learnt to be, they were somehow learnt to discriminate against women. Um, and the scientists have came out and said that the only way they can fix this AI is actually introducing the idea of gender attaching to the profile, which is illegal to do in most places. So my first question is, is that, is that a pragmatic or reliable way of fixing this whole idea of technology and AI? And two, what's the social implication? Do you think that is important for society to actually recognise people as... Um, as woman or as as coloured pe person, in, and how they sit in the society structure for us to be able to <coughs> to promote equality better. Um, thank you. It's the two really interesting questions. There's like, two. Yeah, two very distinct questions. Good, like, question they, like, I'm gonna that. go with the first one first, which is like, um, Mike. Kind of depends how down you are with Einstein's universal constant and the special theory of relativity. But basically, it's like kind of what we did there back in 1912, which is we didn't really have the data to explain why the universe was or wasn't expanding. And Einstein's like, oh, it's fine if we put a C in. <laughs> like, if we, if we cram in a kind of like a, this, this number, it works. So let's just put that in, and we'll work out what that is later on. And that's kind of what you're talking about there, which is that, um, yeah, no, no, AIs are not logic machines. They're not kind of going through processing, going add female, add, you know, Marrickville, add, like, no education, charge more. That's not actually what they're doing. Like, with AIs, that's like the old model. With AIs, they are looking for patterns, and they are finding patterns. And this can be very, very useful, and it can be very, very destructive. Like, weirdly, the, those biases come from um, its experience, like the experience of the information. So yeah, if you want to make it fair, you have to um, kind of like put some sellotape in. Um, if you want to make it really fair, you have to acknowledge that kind of is fair. If, that's got, if it's got all the data, it's like, yeah, that's kind of what the data is telling us, is that this pattern should be biased towards or away from women. I'm actually not quite sure whether you feel that whether, the, whether it was leaning towards considering women safer drivers. I mean, there's lots of really interesting data problems with that. It's like, women became safer drivers when cars stopped being designed for men, <laughs> which is one of my favorite kind of gender design points. Coincidences. Just complete coincidence, but like, actually, the number of accidents involving women went down. <laughs> when the cars started being designed with more women in mind, with, them, with a, a female physique in mind. That's great stuff. Um, I think it's interesting. I was talking to an economist the other day who was saying that he's frustrated because he feels like politicians are sort of 
abrogating their moral responsibility to make choices and putting that on economists who need to weigh pros and cons, balance sheets, yeah. and come up and say, this is the fair thing to do because it is, you know, it balances in a spreadsheet. And I wonder if this is kind of what we're doing yes. with technology and that, that as well. will also be, ultimately, it doesn't matter what the economist says because if it's a politically inexpedient solution, they're not going to take it. They're, they're retrofitting Their vested the solution, interest is actually not really in the most effective decision, and that's something that we, we should acknowledge, which is that we will not defend politicians who make difficult choices. Mm. We don't defend them. We don't re-elect them, mm. because the decisions they made are hard, but correct, so they're out of a job, because the other guy, probably a guy, says that they will roll it back. But do you think we're doing the same thing with technology, that we're putting moral choices onto a technology We like find it AI? very difficult not to apply value systems. We do not have enough time, fortunately, <laughs> for me to get into like my disdain for kind of um, value systems mm. and the idea that, that any technology or data should carry values. But when we do talk about data, one of the great problems is, is that it is corrupted by like, its existence in time. So, yeah, no, there is nothing which is fair because there are always spoilers in there. There have always been kind of things which have, have kind of skewed things one way or another. And there have always been unknown unknowns. There are always kind of data, data sets that we don't even, aren't even aware and certainly weren't capturing. So um, there are many, many different variables that we won't be capturing. So, yeah, there's no kind of real fairness to it. And we do put a sticky... You will find anyone putting a sticky tape on it and saying, let's try and make it fair. With regard to the second question, which is actually almost not the, the remit of this, this form, it is not on um, technology to reflect difference. Um, it is on society to, 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 to not need that difference to be reflected. And we are not going to start making things better by, by creating better representation in a way. We need to, we will make society better by decreasing like these, the, the number of labels that are required for me to exist as a person. Like, I have to have a lot of labels because I don't fit. Mm. But it's because people can go, oh, it's okay, she's autistic. Oh, it's okay, she, well, she, it's more complicated than mental, but I tend to go with mental, it's okay. <laughs> she's mental, just fine, she's fine. Let her rock on. And actually, those labels, whilst they do allow me to exist in certain ways and understand myself, and you, know, and you will all have those labels that you apply to yourself, they may not be so kind of like pathologized. They are what allow you to be you within your world. And they, a, lot of, a lot of our understanding of belonging is about um, what we do to belong. <laughs> the clothes we wear, the, the way we have our hair cut, the cars we drive, the words we use, all of these things that we do every day are really just about allowing us to belong and feel like we belong, which is ultimately safety and security. So you're back to kind of Maslow and mm. basic sort of senses of how we are going to survive. Um, it's really primitive stuff. Sorry. Let's go for one more question. Um, just back here. <laughs> Oh, is there anyone on this left side? I feel like I've favoured the, the yeah. right side. Yeah, so I'm sorry. <laughs> it's in my eye line. Maybe we'll try two quick questions. One... I think the problem with that is two quick answers. <laughs> um, hi. I, um, I'm curious about your position about the doodles mm. and that you see them as being a bit revisionist in their view of history. 
Um, I have to admit, I disagree slightly, um, and particularly coming from a visual arts background. Um, I think, like, the best example to me is um, uh, the Expressionists. I think the most famous uh, abstract Expressionists within America are the, um, the men, like Jackson Pollock, you know, Gerhard Richter. Like, there are a whole heap of names that immediately come to mind. But then, like, I happen to know through my art history knowledge that... Um, you know, Leek Krasner is probably quite famous in her own right, but, um, like, Helen Frankenthaler, like, there's all these names that became part of their picture, they were part of their group, they contributed to their history, but I feel like the, the common knowledge of that is not as strong because they were women and they weren't revered in the same way, they weren't remembered in the same way, and you mentioned, like, data is very selective in that way, it's, like, how we record that. But I'm curious, like, when you have those circumstances and those computers, the early computers who only recently, I feel like, are being remembered in movies, um, like, I can't remember the recent one, but it was... Hidden figures. Hidden figures, Hidden yeah. figures thank so you. So is that kind of about... So it, can these doodles be a way to educate? Is that kind of... Well, no, it's actually about changing history. Yeah, like, yeah. do we... Can we or should we change history? Because you're curious, right. Because there's the recorded history, and that's obviously very different, but to me, I see it as part of, like, the bigger picture of the context that the male um, yeah. figures were, like, famous and popular, but they couldn't have got there necessarily no. on their own. No, and you so, are right. I'm curious as to how that fits with your idea that maybe it's revisionist to go back. So my, my, my issue when we have issues is that actually it is not on a company to, to be a revisionist historian for the world because it cannot do that without its own biases and its own preconceptions. So it is very difficult and it is actually a very interesting point and you maybe could do a whole thing on like when we... When we pull out figures from history, what are we saying, what are we doing, how are we doing that? I kind of agree in principle. I think that it's just one of those, and it, it isn't a fight that I, it's not a hill I choose to die on. Um, but I do, will, and will always kind of like be slightly contrarian about the, about the role that large global tech firms, how we expect them to somehow be fighting for us, and why we do that, and whether we should do that. Um, and, and, like, whether that's fair, if you want to talk about equity, whether it's fair as us privileged white people to be expecting corporations to wade in and fight on behalf of underrepresented women. Um, it's a very challenging thing, but, like, it is... A, I also agree with you. I'm, like, totally down with everything you said. Um, but, yeah, it's a, it's a more, more complicated topic, I think, for me. Mm. Do we have one? Yeah, we do. Let's go one last question. <laughs> Left-hand side, who would like... <laughs> Anyone there? <laughs> no, they've Anything. given up. This side's totally given up on you. <laughs> Thank you. So I, I guess my question is um, around, I've sort of read about this idea of what would, what would like a feminist internet look like or mm. kind of you could describe whatever qualifier, what would an inherently equitable internet look like basically? And I think... I just want to understand what you think that maybe looks like or if that's even possible because obviously tech as it exists, even if it's a newer industry only 15, 20 years old, obviously has standard operating procedures. It has kind of ways it's always been done even if it's a new industry. So is that even possible? 
What does it look like? It's really interesting. Like, again, there are bodies and committees that, that have formed not, not out of kind of design, but there are, like, institutional aspects to these things, like whether that's ICANN or, or Unicode, which are very, very male-dominated just because they were the guys in those spaces. And actually kind of infiltrating that is going to take decades rather than you can't just parachute a bunch of people in. That's not how that's going to work. Um, there are also who's to parachute them in and who are they and how do we pick them and like should they be skilled like what what all of that is a, is a big and rich and complicated question I love the idea of uh, um, a tech uh, like <laughs> there's this concept of like the tech agenda and actually I think if you want a feminist internet you go yeah let's have a look at the tech agenda what are they trying to do and we didn't really get to this but it's a really useful way of looking at um, when tech is gendered. Like, don't look at, look at specific examples. Look at what technology's priorities are. And then try and imagine if any women would make those their priorities. <laughs> at all. Um, and that's where the lean-in things comes, because it's like, wow, we have, like, 30% representation in senior, senior, senior roles, and we have no influence. No influence. Um, we had a period emoji last year. I'm obsessed with emoji at the moment. But like, and it's, we were talking about, um, um, Fee and I were talking about um, the wearable tech, which kind of records your thing, and the, the way in which the Apple Watch did not have, did not consider menstruation to be something which you should record data about, like, because it's special. <laughs> <laughs> there are, like, those are little things which you can point at and go, this is stupid, and we can laugh. But, um, where really, if you look at it at a big level, it's like, what do you care about when you, when, you get to CIS, when you get to Davos, when you get to these places where they talk? What is it that they talk about? And no, those are not the right... That is not what, what, what feminists looking to kind of create an, an equal platform for women in the world would consider to be the priorities. So until we get there, that would be wild, though, I mean, it will also seem super surreal. And that tells you a lot as well. Like, you can't even visualize these guys saying these words. And I, I know we have people working towards that goal. Like, there are literally groups and organizations who are focused on that, trying to persuade them, cajole them, embarrass them, shame them, trick them, tease them. However we need to do that, changes it. That's what changes. Changes like whatever it takes, and, and we haven't clearly got quite there yet. Mm. We're out of time. <laughs> <laughs> um, everyone, would you please join me in thanking Tayyuko? Thanks for listening. And please rate and review Ideas at the House in your favourite podcast app. You can also listen to more Sydney Opera House podcasts at sydneyoperahouse.com slash podcasts.